sing My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, hymn number 228. To share with you this morning, the word is uh, 60. <laughs> it's not a word, it's a number. It's a number. Tomorrow is September 21st. It's the first day of fall. That's a good thing. <laughs> this past week, in order to prepare for the fact that I'll turn 60 tomorrow, 
I uh, underwent a couple of medical procedures, which is why I wasn't here Wednesday night. I'm very grateful to Tom for standing here and doing a very good job of teaching on Wednesday night. Thank you, Tom, for doing that. Thank you all for your concern. Everything went fine. I was sore afterwards, exactly as I expected to be. Sore throat afterwards, exactly as I expected. But new wrinkle, something I had never gone through before. I have gone through this uh, particular throat stretching procedure before. I have esophageal webbings. And every once in a while, that tissue has to be pushed out of the way so that I can swallow okay. And so I went through that and uh, fine, came through it fine, sore throat, okay, expected that. Hiccups, didn't see that coming. Hiccups, started on Thursday afternoon, went until Friday night, pretty much nonstop. Spasmodic, rhythmic, jolting hiccups. So I didn't sleep much during that period of time. And people would call me very kindly to check on me, make sure that everything went okay, make sure that I was okay. And I would try to talk to people, and eventually I just quit answering the phone because all I could do was go, well, I for I'm, and so I just quit. So hiccups, yeah. So those finally went away, which I'm very, very grateful for. Now I just kind of have a remnant of a sore throat, and uh, I should be okay. Hi, Kathy. I just want you to know that my cousin had hiccups for a month. So. Well, see, I have heard these stories. Yes, and so when it came on, especially surgically induced hiccups, have a tendency to hang around for a very long time. And so of the many things that I've ever prayed to God to deliver me from, <laughs> this week I was in genuine and sincere prayer that he would deliver me from the scourge of hiccups. And he did. We are technically still in Matthew 16, but before we get there, a few things I do want to talk about because we've just gone through a very interesting period on the calendar and in contemporary church uh, falderall, and so it's worth talking about for a moment. Feast of Trumpets has come and gone, and with it, all of the Shemitah talk, there was a lot of people date setting and predicting that this was the year Jesus was coming back because, well, there were blood moons. And because of the blood moons, you combine that with Shemitah and you combine that with... Anyway, there were people who said this was the year Jesus was coming. And there were a lot of people very enthused, very expectant that this was going to be the time. And I really didn't think it was going to be the time basically because um, the Bible... And so I really didn't think this was going to be the time. I'm disappointed in one way that it wasn't the time because I'm willing to go any time he's willing to come get us. Now is good. I'm willing to go at any point. But, but no, all of the, the stuff surrounding this year's Feast of Trumpets has come and gone. But this coming week, Starting on Tuesday night, going into Wednesday, is the Feast of Atonement on the Jewish calendar. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because it does also tie in a bit to what we've been reading in Matthew 16 and coming up in Matthew 17. One of the things that Jesus has repeatedly told his apostles 
Like in chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And of course, we looked last week at Peter rebuking him over that and saying, let that be far from you. And Jesus called him Satan to his face for saying that and said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is going to bring it up again in chapter 17, starting in verse 22. When they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Jesus kept warning them, kept telling them that this was going to happen. This is what was planned. This is what was determined for him. Which is why he used the language of must, that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Jews. All of these things had to happen. They were predetermined, they were prefigured, they were foreshadowed all the way through the Old Testament and probably nowhere more clearly than in the Feast of Atonement, which is coming up, as I said, this week. Let's talk about the word atonement first, because that's a really interesting word. I'm a word guy. I like words. I'm interested in how language changes and mutates over time. The word atonement at this point in time really only has one meaning. It's kind of like if you look it up in the dictionary under A and you find atonement, it'll say C, atonement, because the word is an invention. The word that is in the Hebrew scripture for day of atonement, we say today the modernized version of it is Yom Kippur. The Hebrew is actually a plural word as opposed to just Kippur or Yom Kippur. It is Yom Ha Kippurim. It would be the day of atonements because there were a series of atoning sacrifices that were made on that particular day. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But the high priest went in and sacrificed for himself, for his family, for the altar, for the furniture, for the tent, for the holy place, and ultimately then for Israel. And the way that he accomplished that was through the cunning use of two goats, And that is where we get the word scapegoat from. To this very day, if someone is sort of a political sacrificial lamb, we'll say, well, he was a scapegoat. Well, that's a good biblical Old Testament concept, the scapegoat. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So 1534, right about there, there was a brand new New Testament created by William Tyndale into the English language, working from the Latin and from the Greek. And in his New Testament, he used a very good old English term that we simply don't have anymore. And the old English term was one, at one, and at one meant. If two people were against each other, if they were at odds with each other, and you would make peace between them, you would say that the two who had been separate were now at one. And in fact, uh, Shakespeare uses that word a couple of times. 
can find it in Richard III. You can find the phrase that has to do with two warring factions who were made at one. The state of being at one instead of at two or separated from each other became known as the state of at one meant. Now, prior to that, in the Latin version of the New Testament, prior to William Tyndale's version in the early 16th century, the concept of atonement was usually translated either as propitiation or reconciliation. The idea is the same. The idea of reconciling two parties or the idea of bringing two parties at one with each other is the same idea. And so Tyndale, in his New Testament, used the word at one. And he called it the day of at one which in the early 1500s, everybody understood. And then we just started pronouncing it differently. And time went by. And it became known as the Day of Atonement. And so the concept of atonement carried over into this newly translated or newly pronounced word atonement. And then you get the word atone. And we even speak of Jesus's atoning work. And we all kind of understand what that means, except that by calling it the Day of Atonement, it singularized it. When in fact, as I said, the Hebrew is pluralized. And so I want you to understand what really took place at the Day of Atonement because all of it was pointing forward to Christ. For 1400 years, the Israelites kept this day. The Feast of Trumpets was the Jewish New Year. And then following right on its heels was this Day of Atonement that was a a high holy day, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. You couldn't do any servile work on that day. It was a day dedicated to recognition of the God who had redeemed Israel and brought them out of Egypt. And on that day, it was the only day that the high priest, as long as he was dressed correctly, as long as he had a proper sacrifice, as long as he had the right blood on that day and that day only, he was allowed to go into the inner tent inside the tabernacle in the wilderness, the place that was called the holiest place, the holy of holies, the Kadesh Kadashim. Now, he wasn't allowed to go in there any other day of the year. If he did, God would kill him. If he went in there wearing the wrong clothes, God would kill him. If he went in there with the wrong sacrifice or even the wrong incense, God would kill him. Because God was real serious about this event, this day, this practice. And the reason he was so serious about it was because it foreshadowed, it prefigured, it pointed to the Christ to come and what Christ was going to accomplish. On the Day of Atonement, God allowed that through sacrifice, the sins of Israel would be atoned for, reconciled for. Now, I told you that the name for the day that we call Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. That word Kippur comes from the essential word kafar that means covering. When Noah was told to build an ark and then cover the outside with pitch, that word is kafar, a covering. 
inside the holiest place, inside the Holy of Holies, there were really only a couple of items. There was an altar of incense that would burn just outside the door, but inside there was this box, this golden box. And on top of the golden box, there were two angels molded with their wings touching in the center, facing each other. And that was the place between the angel wings on the lid of the golden box. That was the place where each year, when the sacrifice was properly made, a cloud would descend from heaven and sit between the angel wings, reassuring all Israel that indeed God had accepted their sacrifice for that year. That's why this was the holiest place. When that was going on, the people of Israel had to stand far off. Only the priests could go close, only the Levites could go close, and only the high priest could go in. When he went in, I mentioned that he had to have the right clothing, even down to the proper underwear. God designated every single thing that he would wear. But he had to have a turban, a white turban on his head. And on that white turban, there had to be a golden plate. And that golden plate was engraved with the words, holiness to the Lord. So that when God looked down from heaven, the first thing he saw, imprinted in gold, over the man's mind, was holiness to the Lord. God didn't see that. No deal. Kill him. And so that golden box had a covering on it, a lid that was known as the capareth, the covering. So this is the place of covering where Israel's sins are covered when he would bring the blood of a sacrifice in and sprinkle it on the capareth, on the covering And he would sprinkle it between the wings of the angels. And then God would come down and accept the sacrifice and accept the atoning work that had been done. And then Israel's sins were paid for for another year. But as the New Testament writers tell us, and particularly the writer of Hebrews, one of the downsides of this practice was that it never actually fully accomplished Forgiveness for sin. All it could do was hold off God's wrath for sin, but it never actually satisfied God because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could never once for all finish the atoning work. The proof of that is the next year had to do it again and then do it again and do it again. And in fact, I had a critic one time tell me that what he didn't like about the Bible was the fact that especially in the Old Testament, but even in the language of the New Testament, there was just so much blood in the Bible. And they found that off-putting. Just too much blood. The reason there is so much blood in the Bible is because there is so much sin in humanity. And for sin comes death. The wages of sin is death. And when someone sins, someone dies. And that's inevitable. And so God allowed in astounding grace that a sacrifice could die, a substitute could die in the place of people. And he foreshadowed that for 1,400 years in the way that he dealt with Israel 
starting right at Mount Sinai when God started laying out the plans for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness and set aside the entire tribe of Levi so that the Levites would serve in his tabernacle. He began right away as soon as he constituted Israel as a nation. He began teaching them how to properly worship him. And at the core, at the center of it all, was this concept of Kaparath, covering Kapura, Yom Kapur. And so what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus came and satisfied all those types and all those shadows, and Jesus became our covering. And the best part is, he did it once. And according to Hebrews 10.14, when he did it, God was so pleased with it that he, here's the language the Hebrews writer uses, he said that by that one sacrifice, Christ perfected forever those that he had sanctified. Not only did he finish the work, but he finished the work, went to his father's throne room above, and then sat down. Very specific language, that when the work was finished, he sat because the work was actually fully accomplished. I like to point out that when you look at the furniture that was in the tabernacle, you have the laver of cleansing, and you have the table of showbread, and you have the candles that have to be lit. You have the altar of incense, and you have the altar outside the tabernacle where the animal is sacrificed, and you have the holiest place, and you have the Ark of the Covenant with the capareth on top of it. You find no chairs. There are no stools, no chaise lounge, no place to relax. There's no, there's no furniture inside that allows you to stop working. When you're inside the tent of meeting, it's work, 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 work. Christ comes along. Christ accomplishes the work. Christ finishes the work. And then the writer of Hebrews says, we rest. And uses this wonderful language of rest where he says, we are brought into the eternal rest, the final rest, the complete rest that Israel was never able to accomplish because the work had to continue and continue and continue. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the way that this atoning work was done was through the use of two goats. Let's go read about it. Go to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 16. Go back and find Leviticus 16. You'll find your Genesis, your Exodus, your Leviticus. And we're going to start right at the first verse. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. This is the, the intersection where God speaks to Moses again, because Aaron, Moses' brother, was chosen to be the first high priest. And when his sons decided that they would just do the high priest thing their way, God killed them. Remember what I said. God's real serious about this. You do it his way and you don't vary from his way. So after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, this is when the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil. That's into the holiest place, into the holy of holies. Before the 
mercy seat. Now, mercy seat is the word that is a translation of this capareth, the covering. The golden lid became known as, in the English language, again, another invention, the mercy seat, the place where people could find mercy before God, the place where the, the cloud of God would come down and settle between the angelic golden wings. But tell your brother Aaron not to go in all the time. God's going to specify a particular time when the high priest can go in. Before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. With a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash, and attired in a linen turban, and these are the holy garments. And he shall bathe his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering." Then Aaron shall offer the bull for a sin offering, which is for himself, and he will, here's that word, make atonement. So he will make atonement. He will make reconciliation between himself and his household and God. So he'll make atonement for himself and his household, and then he'll take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Okay, so here's the way this is working. He's going to take two animals, two sacrificial animals. Sacrificial animals had to be examined. They couldn't have any spot, any blemish. They couldn't have any sickness or any disease. And he had to bring two of them and then cast lots. Now, of course, you know that in the Proverbs we read, the lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't up to Aaron to decide which goat died and which was the scapegoat. It was up to God to determine that. So he would actually cast lots so that it was out of his hands and God would determine which goat died and which goat got away. And so you will have the two goats, and Aaron, verse 8, shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and he will make it into a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell, now some of your translations, anybody got Azazel? Okay, that is the Hebrew word some of your translations will capitalize it as if it's a, a proper name, which it's not. It's a designation. It is a designation for the goat who is going to make reconciliation. It's the goat who's going to carry the burden of Israel and carry it outside the camp. And so that's why other translations use the word scapegoat to get away from the confusion of that word Hazazel, which has simply just been carried 
from the Hebrew into the English language because they didn't know what to do with it. It's kind of, again, like this word mercy seat. It's these, these old Hebrew concepts. How do we find a one-for-one -one English translation, an English word that carries the concept of these Hebrew words? And some of these Hebrew words just don't have one-for-one -one equal words. And so words like mercy seat came up or atonement or scapegoat. Same idea, though, same concept. The goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to make reconciliation upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall offer the bull for a sin offering, which is for himself, says verse 11, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring all that inside the veil into the holiest place. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of incense will cover the mercy seat that is upon the ark of the testimony, lest he die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat on the east side. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement, he shall make reconciliation for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. I just want you to understand everything that's happening. At this point, he's not even sacrificing for Israel. He's cleansing himself. He's cleansing the furniture. He's cleansing the tent. The very fact that the tent that was dedicated to God is in the midst of Israel makes the tent impure. So even the tent has to be cleaned up before the final sacrifice can be done. By the way, if you want some sense of how God looks at human beings, how intrinsically sinful he finds human beings, this furniture, this tent, had been purified last year. This tent has been purified Every year, it's been sacrificed for, blood's been sprinkled on it, it's been sanctified, set apart for God's exclusive use. Nobody's even been in here for a year. But the very fact that the tent was in the midst of Israel means it's impure again. That's how God sees the sinfulness, the depravity of human beings. When his sanctified things, when his holy things when the objects that have been set aside for his exclusive use are in the midst of humans, touched by humans, used by humans, God says, can't touch it now. It's impure. Humans have been near it. 
You got to go back and clean it again. You got to go back and sacrifice again. Something has to die for it. There's got to be a blood sacrifice. There's got to be a bull. There's got to be a goat. There's got to be sprinkling of blood. Now put flesh and blood on it. Don't just read this. First, Aaron had to clean himself. Then he had to put on the clean clothes, down to the clean underwear, put on the clean turban. And then, clean as he was, kill an animal, slice its neck open, catch the blood in a bowl. This is gruesome stuff. This wasn't just, oh, there's a dead animal. This isn't just roadkill. This is with his own hand. He has to slice the neck open and then catch some of the blood and then carry it into the holiest place where he hasn't been for a year. And then he has to take his hand and dip his hand into the blood and then throw it down, cast it against the east side of the lid, put some down there, put some down in front of it, and then go back outside and go through the process again with a goat and sanctify the goat and kill the goat and slice the goat and catch the blood and go back inside. Put his hands in the blood. Sprinkle the blood. Throw it on the ground. Put it on the mercy seat. Sprinkle it onto the Ark of the Covenant again. Over and over. This is a really graphic, bloody thing that God required because that's what sin requires. Again, think about what God thinks about sin. It's not just something dies. It's something dies at the hands of a priest who kills it, who then takes its blood as a sacrifice before God to demonstrate that this is what sin requires. This Tuesday, sundown, Day of Atonement is going to begin. Will we be gathering here to kill some animals? No. No. That would shake up our neighbors. <laughs> you know, 14 years ago when we moved in here, our next door neighbor over here caught me at the fence one day. She was very concerned about having a church move in next door. She actually said to me, uh, you all don't handle snakes, do you? And I said, only the two-legged kind. <laughs> She's been a good neighbor for 14 years, but she was very concerned about that. So I thought it would be fun the first week to go outside with a couple of chickens, you know. And just, ah! yeah, but we decided to be nice to her. So why is it that we're not going to be outside killing animals this week? God requires it. God says do it under penalty of death. And we won't be doing this. Why? Because of Christ, because something changed in the economy of God. After 1,400 years of doing this, he allowed that his son could be the one sacrifice, the single sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. And he would accomplish what none of these goats, none of these bulls actually accomplished. Once for all finished final atoning work. The at-one-ment took place. The reconciliation took place. He became our propitiation. He satisfied God so utterly and completely that God accepts us on the basis of what Christ did. And none of these animals could do it, and yet God required it every year, year in, year out, under pain of death. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Okay, so let's talk about the scapegoat, because this is where it really gets interesting. I think this is all interesting. You interested? Yes. Mm -hmm. Am I boring anybody yet? No. 
Okay. Not yet. I'm working toward it. If you're bored by the word of God, (laughs) you're in the wrong place. Verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering. Remember the two goats. The lot fell on one of them. They become a sin offering. He will slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgression in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself. And for his household and for all the assembly of Israel, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and on all the sides. And with his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel And he will consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat, the one that the lot fell to be the scapegoat. Then here's what Aaron does. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the living goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat. So the goat now becomes the very embodiment of the sins of Israel. By placing his hands on the goat's head and confessing Israel's sins over the head of the goat, the goat becomes the embodiment of Israel's sins. Here's what happens. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. As soon as that thing becomes the embodiment of Israel's sin, you hand it off and you get it out of there. So one goat died in order to cleanse the Ark of the Covenant, in order to cleanse the altar, in order to cleanse the tent and the tent of meeting. But the one that really did the work for Israel is the one who is the scapegoat, the one who was taken completely out of the camp of Israel, signifying that once the goat became the embodiment of Israel's sins, it was then taken away so that the sins of Israel are taken completely out of their camp. You get the picture? Because when you get to Christ, not only did he say, I have to go to Jerusalem, I must be turned over to the Jews. I'm going to be killed. I'm going into the heart of the earth, and I'm going to be there for three days and three nights. And then I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back. I'm going to accomplish everything that the scripture says about me. But we read that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He did what the scapegoat did. And rather than the high priest putting hands on the head of a goat and confessing Israel's sins over the goat. 
all of the sins of all God's people were placed on the head of Christ. And he became the embodiment of our sin. And when he died and went into the grave, he removed our sin from us completely. Took it out of the way. He became our scapegoat. The lot fell to him. And not to Leon. Leon deserved the lot. Leon deserved to die. Don't grin, Alan, because you deserved it every bit as much. <laughs> yeah, get Leon. <laughs> the reason that we don't die for our own sin is because Christ became our scapegoat. Christ became the embodiment of our sin. And then he took it out of the way. The whole day of atonement thing is all about God willingly, purposefully setting up a system whereby a substitute could die in our place so that we would not have to pay the very high price that is owed for our sinfulness. And by the way, if you want some sense of how God views our encroachments against him, he created something called the lake of fire. Where we read in the book of Revelation that the people who end up there, it was made for the devil and his angels, but we read that all those who end up taking the mark and worshiping the beast all end up in the lake of fire. And then you read, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. That gives you some sense of what God thinks of encroachments against an eternally holy God. When you sin against an eternally holy God, that is an eternal sin. That requires an eternal payment. And you're either going to pay it. Or he'll allow a substitute to pay it. And he allowed his son. The only one qualified to pay an eternal payment. To be your substitute. Because you couldn't do it. I don't care how many times Todd died. If he died a zillion times between now and eternity. He's never going to be able to pay sufficient price. Because he's a sinner. And because his blood is sinful. And because of that, God is never going to say, good enough, Todd. There's nothing Todd can do. But God allowed that the righteous one, the holy one, the only just one, who was in fact God incarnate walking in shoe leather on the planet, that one is a sufficient sacrifice. The very blood of God was spilled. This is why it is so important that his blood flowed. It flowed out of his hands, it flowed from his forehead, it flowed out of his side because it was a blood sacrifice. But that blood atonement once and for all accomplished what none of the animals of the Old Testament could accomplish. Once and for all, God was satisfied with one finished sacrifice. 1,400 years God had been telling this story. And when Jesus said, I have to go to Jerusalem, he was saying, 1,400 years has been pointing toward this. In fact, my father and I agreed in eternity I was going to do this. When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and says, what am I going to say? Take this cup from me? No, for this purpose, I came here. This is why I'm here. It culminates at Calvary. The purpose of Christ coming to the planet culminates in him ending up on the cross so that he would satisfy 
1400 years and the eternal declaration and determination of God that in the end Christ was going to have a people who would be trophies of grace for all eternity to testify to the goodness of the Son. The reason you live and breathe, the reason you're conscious and know your name is for his glory. And he's going to be just as glorified in the judgment of his enemies as he's going to be in the salvation of his people. Because one goat died in his own blood and was sacrificed. One became the embodiment of sin and took that sin away from Israel. And if you don't have Christ as your scapegoat, you still have to pay. So here's the rest of the story. Verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body with water in the holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. And the one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. Why all this cleaning afterwards? Because they had touched sinful things. The scapegoat had become sin. The man who took the sinful goat out had to come back and be cleansed again, had to be cleaned. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make the atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and there they will burn the hides and their flesh and their refuse in the fire. And then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and then afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. And you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in the Father's house shall make atonement. And he shall thus put on the linen garments and the holy garments and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. See, that's permanent. That is a permanent statue. You're going to do it over and over. You're going to repeat this over and over every year. Never stop doing this. Why? Because it's all pointing forward. It's all pointing to Christ. It's all telling the same story over and over again, which is that God does not wink at sin. God does not simply excuse sin. There has to be a price paid for sin. 
And that price is either going to be the blood of animals, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, or ultimately the sacrifice of yourself in eternity when God judges you and sends you into places like outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or into Gehenna, into hell, which Jesus described as the place where the worm never sleeps, where the fire is never quenched. Or you have a scapegoat. You have a substitute. And if, in fact, it turns out that Christ is your substitute, this is where it really gets good. When you stand before God, when it comes time for your face-to-face with God, he's going to open a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he's going to find names written in it that according to the book of Revelation were written down before the foundation of the world. And if your name is in that book, then God chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would be in his son and his son would be in you. And when he sent his son to the planet and his son kept saying, I have to do this, I have to do this, I must go to Jerusalem, I have to die, I have to accomplish this. The reason he had to do it is because this was decided, this was decreed, this was written down before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come to the planet in order to save everybody whose name is written in that book and when you get there and he looks you up and finds your name and says come on in well done good and faithful servant you're going to go no no see I didn't do anything I'm good and faithful servant no not me have you watched me do you know me have you met me do you know not me What's going to be your response? You're going to say, glory. Oh, glory to the Lamb. Oh, all the glory belongs to Him. Glory to the one who actually did it, because I didn't do it. Everything I did was for the purpose of my own damnation. I did nothing to help me. But you're telling me that I get to be not only in heaven forever, but that I become joint heir with Christ in everything that he deserves, in all the heavenly splendor and glory that God has designed, that God has created in order to exalt his son, Todd's going to share in that. Todd is going to... Todd is going to... Todd is going to share in everything that only Jesus could possibly deserve. Who do you think Todd's going to be talking about when that happens? Todd's not going to be saying, well done, Todd. Todd's going to be going, I love my Jesus. I love my Lord. I love my Savior. And he's going to say that for all eternity because it's always going to be new. It's always going to be refreshed. The joy is going to be constant. The joy is going to be eternal. And at the same time, daily, the joy is going to be complete. And every time he's going to look at his Savior and say, I'm here and I don't belong here. I'm here and I don't deserve to be here. I'm here because of you. You're my scapegoat. You're the one who accomplished what I could never accomplish. You're the one who redeemed me, who atoned for me, who reconciled me. You are the one who became the sufficient sacrifice. So that I stand now before God, the writer of Hebrews says, we stand there exactly like the unblemished animal. He says, we have neither spot, nor wrinkle, nor blemish. Better yet, blameless. 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have plenty to be blamed for. This is why I love Paul's language in Romans 8 when he says there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. None. Now. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. You never heard better news in your silly little life. That's right. Walking through your life thinking you have some kind of control, thinking you know what you're doing. do 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 You have no idea what's going on. God in his divine plan since before the foundation of the world chose you, separated, separated you from the world, introduced himself to you and placed his spirit inside you. He drew you, he called you, and he accomplished everything necessary so that you will be in his presence forever. And he did it all. And so he gets all the praise and he gets all the glory and he gets all the worship. And we will most willingly give him that worship forever and ever and ever. And that's the divine plan that is written into the Day of Atonement. So this week, when Tuesday night comes around, And you start hearing about Yom Kippur. People start talking Yom Kippur. You'll know the end of the story. There are lots of Jewish sites out there talking about how the Jews this year are going to be celebrating Yom Kippur. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to try to recount their sins. And they're going to try to pay for it. And they don't have a temple anymore. And they don't have two goats. And they don't even have an altar And so they're going to try to get themselves in a frame of mind where they think they're being good enough or right enough or righteous enough where God is going to accept them on the basis of their work. And they're kidding themselves. Just like everybody else on the planet who thinks that their religion can save them. There is no other way to God but the way, the truth, and the life. The one who said, I have to do this actually did it, actually accomplished it, accomplished it fully and completely, and therefore we can say with great confidence that we are saved. It's one of the sweetest words I know. I'm saved. How about you? You saved? Yes. Yes, sir. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. Do you hear what that language means now? Mm-hmm. Well, then I wish you a happy Yom Kippur. <laughs> But I hope you understand what it means. All right? right. Wow, did I go easy on you today. But uh, I'm old. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.